And so this is what has led us then as a church to focus for this month in the book of Jonah and talk about God's love for lost saints and sinners. Because it's only when we believe that this is actually God's idea, it's what he wants us to do, that we can proceed in it without any guilt, but just the joy that it is to be a part of what God is doing in this world. But that God's view is global. God, yes, he's doing something in your life and in my life. He's doing something in our community. But he always has a larger lens that he's working on. He always has a bigger scale and a bigger canvas that he is working on than your life and mine. And we've decided for the last month to go to the book of Jonah in the Old Testament to show how from the beginning that's been the purpose of God. He at times selects individual people to do very specific things, but his focus even in that election, even in that choosing, is beyond the person, him or herself. He has something in mind for them to do in order to bless other people. And so the nation of Israel was often called God's chosen people. But it was from the beginning God's desire that they as a chosen people would bless all the nations in the world. The New Testament calls the church God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. There's a uniqueness about believers, yet God's intention is that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So even in God's election, even in his choosing, He's got something other than you and me in mind when he saves us. And it's wonderful. It's beautiful. And we're going to be in Jonah chapter 4 today, finishing up our series. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. This is on page 775 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the pew. While this is such good news, something that we're going to discover in our chapter today is that not everybody receives it as good news. Um, This is quite the interesting chapter. It's not a chapter you would expect to open up into the Bible and read the attitude that we're going to see displayed by Jonah. So for those of you who haven't been with us till now, uh, the short version is that Jonah as a prophet was called to go to another nation to share with them the message that God had for them. And that was unique because prophets usually got called to their own nation, but Jonah was asked to go to another nation. And it was a hard request because this other nation was a political enemy of Israel. There had been several military conflicts between these two nations. And so what God was asking his prophet to do was, in fact, to go out to Israel's enemies and to proclaim a message to them. It was a hard request, and because it was hard, Jonah ignored it. He didn't want to do it. He went the other way. And only by an act of a miracle did God get him to go on the right road to go to Nineveh and to preach the message Then by another miracle in chapter 3, the nation actually responded to the message that they heard. And from sort of a grassroots movement all the way up to the king, there was a repentance that took place in Nineveh. They listened. They took seriously the warning of God's judgment, and they repented and experienced life. And verse 10 of chapter 3 ended by saying, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So we would anticipate going into chapter 4 and verse 1, just nothing but celebration. Oh my goodness. They actually listened to the message. The whole city responded to it. But this is what we read in chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, 
Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose... God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? That's where our reading ends. And for many of us saying, you can't end it like that. Come on, how how does a story end like this? It It is interesting. But in verse 1, Jonah's attitude, instead of celebration, instead of rejoicing, instead of humility, it says that it displeased him exceedingly, and he was angry. One of the ways that we can measure truly whether or not we understand God's grace, really understand what it means for God to be gracious to us, is whether or not there is somebody out there that we hope He's not gracious to. Is there anybody in your life that you say, I really hope God is not merciful to them? I really, really hope that he doesn't extend his grace to them. I want them to get what's coming to them. I've got no problem with grace. At least that's Jonah's thinking. I'm, I'm, I'm a recipient of it. God has done miraculous things in my life, but I'm telling you, I really hope he doesn't do it in someone else's life. This is Jonah's attitude. It makes him angry that God would be gracious to these people that he looked at and said, these are our enemies. So that when you read the first couple of verses of this chapter, as it describes Jonah's attitude, you almost picture someone fuming. I mean, knocking things over and saying, I can't believe you do this. You're such a, and with that kind of anger, you expect maybe a certain type of limited vocabulary coming out. But what he says is, I knew you were gracious and merciful and slow to anger. And everything he is saying about God is something wonderful and beautiful and amazing about God. But it's almost like he's cursing. He's so upset. That God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So one of the first things that we see in this chapter 
is we learn what happens in a person's mind and heart when grace offends. The idea of God being gracious to these people offends him. It shocks his conscience that God would be merciful so that everything that is good about God becomes almost like poison in his soul. And instead of celebrating it, he's frustrated by it. When grace offends, everything that is good and beautiful about God to us becomes harsh and mean. Have you had a conversation with somebody where you've tried to explain grace to them and they've been offended by it? It's counterintuitive. You wouldn't think that when you're trying to lay out to someone the good news, the great news, the best news that's ever been told, that they would walk away and say, that's horrible. I had that one time in a very stark way, witnessing to a coworker of mine when I worked at a Starbucks. And it was a slow night, so we had plenty of opportunity to talk to each other. And at the end of it, he said, I just think that's horrible news. So what do you mean that's horrible news? We call it the good news. So if what you're telling me is true, then some person who's in jail right now because they committed murder if they just repent of their sin, if they just say they were wrong and realize they were wrong and they go to Jesus, they could go to heaven. I haven't killed anybody and you're telling me I'm going to hell. That's horrible news. I said, well, I mean, maybe you haven't, maybe you haven't killed anybody, but would you, have, you, have you done anything wrong? Have you done anything that you would say um, is sin? He said, no. For me, sin is just hurting other people, like murdering them. That's sin. Well, what about this? Well, that's not sin. What about, that's not sin. What about? And so for him, the idea that God would have mercy towards people who sin was offensive because he also didn't view himself as a sinner, as someone in need of mercy. So the idea that God would extend his grace and would extend his mercy to even the worst of us did not paint for him a great picture of who God was. And he, I got him to admit it by the end of it. So sin is everything you don't do, right? Yes, exactly. It's, it's everything I don't do, but other people do. I said, okay, that, that probably is where the first shift has to take place. And I said, there's, there's a way that the Bible defines sin beyond just doing things you know you shouldn't do. It also describes sin as not doing the things you know you should do. And he looked at me and he said, well, if that's true, then everybody's a sinner. Well, yeah, that's the point. If it's true that sin is not only doing the things we know we shouldn't do, but as James says, not doing the things we know we should do, every one of us is a sinner. But for Jonah, he's angry at the grace of God. So what does that result in? Instead of celebrating and having a party in Nineveh with everybody else like he should, he goes up to a hill, finds a place of shade, and he sits wondering in verse 5 what would become of the city. He's sitting from a vantage point just hoping destruction happens, hoping that this 40-day sentence that he gave just a couple of uh, days before will actually be meted out and the judgment will come. So God gives him an object lesson. He says he appoints a plant to come up to provide shade for him in the desert. And he is exceedingly glad. It uses the, the same emphasis as he was exceedingly angry. He's exceedingly glad that there's, there's some kind of protection for him 
from the heat of the sun in the middle of the desert. And then the plant is removed, the shade is gone, and he becomes upset about that. And as he had in the beginning of the chapter, he does in the end, he's so angry that he just wants his life to be over. That's how angry he was. That's how much he didn't want Nineveh to repent. And so God challenges him. How can you find so much joy over shade in the desert, but you can't find joy that there would be some kind of protection over these people that is my grace, that is my forgiveness? How can we find sometimes so much joy over a cold cup of water, over one conversation with a friend, but not find joy in God's desire to redeem people, to save them forever? I mean, we can look forward so much just to one long weekend like this weekend and say, yes, it's a holiday weekend. That means I get one extra day where I don't have to go to work. And we don't get excited about the prospect of eternity with God. With no sin, no shame, no brokenness, no disease, no crying. We get more excited about the prospect of a three-day weekend. That doesn't make sense. It's good to be excited about a three-day weekend, but we should then be all the more excited about the prospect that we can offer to people not just one day of rest from a year's worth of labor, but an eternity of rest in spite of their sin. That's good news. That's worth celebrating. That's worth getting excited about, that we can offer to people through Jesus Christ an eternity of rest in spite of their sin. But for Jonah, this grace offends him, that God can do what he wants. And so there's a quote on the back of your handout that kind of gets to the heart of this, that at the very core of grace is this realization that what grace means is that God has free will. Grace means that God has free will. He's not obligated to bestow it, but if he's willing, he's able to bestow it on anybody that he chooses. And we don't get to say to him, you get to give it to those people, but don't give it to those people. I'll take some of it, but please don't let somebody else have it. If it's grace and we don't deserve it just as much as anybody else doesn't deserve it, then he is absolutely free to give it to anyone and everyone he chooses. That's what grace means, that he has free will. And we who like to be in control, we who like to put God in a box, and we who like to think about him in terms of only affirming and confirming the things that we believe and the perspective that we have, we don't like this idea that he's above us, that he's bigger than us, that he doesn't have the prejudices we have. He doesn't have the histories that we have. And so there are people that we struggle to get along with that he is desiring to save. Because you know what? We are that for someone else. We are the person that's hard to get along with for somebody else. We are a part of a class or a society or a race that somebody else finds difficult and defensive. And so it's a beautiful thing that God is not limited to our perspectives and our limitations. But here for Jonah, grace offends him. And then it just ends on this cliffhanger. It's God saying, how, how can you be so upset about the plant and not this city of 120,000 people and much cattle and we ask ourselves okay so then what happens and for most commentators they'll suggest that 
though we don't see a conclusion in the form of a verse 12 or 13 and we hear about what happens in Jonah, the, the reality is, well, how do we have access to this information about Jonah? How do we even know this story and how do we even know what was said between God and Jonah and how angry he was except that at some point later it does click in to what extent we don't know but to enough of an extent that we have a story that's recorded for us in which we know what happened between them. And so we see some form of restoration, and this is how it works when grace restores. So first, there's what happens in our heart when grace offends, but then when grace restores us, when we really get it, then one of the distinctives of that is that we can go backwards and we tell our stories about who we once were and what we once did. We don't try to sugarcoat them at all. We're willing to tell in all of its fullness the ugliness of our hearts our bad choices, and our lives. Why would we be willing to do that? Because we know we're not justified and we don't receive God's grace because of our perfection. We wouldn't need his grace if we were perfect. And so when we understand how grace really works, we can be honest about who we really were. And so there's no attempt on the part of Jonah when he's retelling this story to people to then kind of just smooth off some of the edges and make himself sound a little bit better. No, guys, I wasn't that bad. I mean, I was a little bit angry. I was a little bit upset, but I had spicy food the night before. It just, it maybe was something in my stomach. There's no attempt on his part in the retelling of the story to make himself look good. And people who understand grace have the freedom to do that. They don't spend any time trying to make themselves look better than they are because they don't need to. And in fact, doing so undermines the very grace which they've received. And so the New Testament says the same thing as Paul's describing in Ephesians 2. He describes a whole bunch of people caught in sin and struggling in their ways. And he says to everybody, as such were some of you. We we were all like this. And we don't have to pretend otherwise. We don't have to try to make ourselves sound better than we are. We were all lost except for the grace of God that has saved us. It's one of the things that's true about the New Testament Gospels. As the disciples are retelling to their communities of faith what happened in Jesus' life, it's amazing how often the disciples come across is completely ignorant, foolish, and hard to deal with. And you'd say, why is that? Why, if the disciples were the primary people to enable us to have the Gospels, why didn't they make themselves look better in the Gospels, because they'd understood the grace of God. And in understanding it, in being restored to right relationship, they didn't have to rewrite the story and say, this is where James and John, they weren't really that bad. No, 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 they weren't having this disagreement about authority totally based on pride. And Peter really didn't deny Jesus. No, 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 that that isn't how it happened. You read through it and you're amazed at how dumb they often look how hard it is for Christ to get his message through to them. And you say, well, why is that? Because in being restored to God's grace, no longer being offended by it, but being transformed by it, they made no effort then to make themselves look better than they were. And they said, you know, if we're going to tell this story the right way, let me tell you what I did wrong. Let me tell you where I messed up. Let me tell you where I didn't get it, where I was Part of the problem. That's what the gospel writers do. 
And so many people who suggest to us that, you know, oh, as the Bible was transmitted over and over, people were willing to change things and they were willing to make subtractions and additions to try to change the message of it. And we have to say, really? Do you think that would be? Do you think if they were willing to do that, they would have made themselves look as bad as they did? If they weren't concerned for the truth, do you think they would have preserved the truth about their own sin? It's only someone who understands grace that's willing to be as honest and transparent as the text. This works another way as it relates to Nineveh. So first there's Jonah, but then there's Nineveh. We hear this story of repentance, celebration that the city turns to God. What history tells us is that repentance didn't last very long. And it's the city of Nineveh as a part of the Assyrian Empire that would just in a few generations come and completely sack the nation of Israel. So that what we knew of as the ten tribes are no more. They just don't exist. And there's a thousand conspiracy theories of who, where are the ten tribes. But it was the empire of which Nineveh was the capital city, Assyria, that just a few generations from this actually comes and militarily sacks Israel. Now here's the question. If the writers of the Bible were willing to change the story to accommodate people's preferences, why would you ever tell a story in which Nineveh repents? They were already their enemies when Jonah was called to go to them. But you get a couple centuries later and they're really their enemies. There's no reason that a Jew would tell a story about Ninevites being the heroes being the first to respond to the word of God. Unless they, because of God's grace, could say, you know what, they have done some horrible things, and they've done some horrible things to us. But there was this time, and there was this moment, and it was real, and we're going to tell you about it. We don't have to lie about them. We don't have to make them look worse than they are because the repentance was short-lived. We can still tell you the truth of their story. Some of us, we struggle to do this in our relationships. It's not rare to hear a couple that broke up for one of them to then say, you know, I never really loved him. That's probably not true. You probably did at some point. And it was unique at some point, and it meant something at some point. And part of your anger is because it was real at some point. Well, he was always hard to deal with. She never understood this. And our desire, when things then fall apart, is to condemn every aspect of it. And here, the people of Israel preserving this text at a great cost to themselves over century after century after century... And if someone said, hey, can we just get rid of that story? Why are we going to give any press time to those people who did those things? So we're going we're, we're to tell the story. We're going to tell it truthfully because when grace restores a person because they've been transformed by it, they can be honest about their own sins and they can be honest about the good things that have happened even in the people that are no longer their friends or allies. What else can do that? except grace. What else could enable us to do that except God's grace? 
And so while there isn't a verse 12, a 13, a 14 in chapter 4, it is just quite amazing that we have this book. And when we understand it, when grace no longer offends us, when it actually restores us to right relationship with God and with other people, the last thing it does is that grace compels us. When we understand it, we finally get what God is doing in the world, that he cares about people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He desires them to be reached. He desires his good news to go forth. We are compelled to preserve this message. We're compelled to share this message and to reach out to others. And it's at the very heart of what Jesus did. It's at the very heart of his command to all of his disciples. He was the unique Messiah of Israel, the unique promised one. And yet it was him who at the end of Matthew said to all of his disciples in Matthew 28 verses 16 through 20, he gathered them together. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all what I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus could have very easily had a list in there that he said, Except for... Go into all the world and tell them this message except for Pontius Pilate who knew I was innocent but put me on a cross. Go into all the world and tell them the message except for the Pharisees who gave me nothing but trouble in the course of my life. Go into all the world and tell everybody the message except for those who betrayed me, those who spit on me, the Roman soldier who pounded nails in me except Jesus doesn't do that. He gives his command without exception. He says, go and tell everyone you can tell. Because what he was willing to do, he was willing to do for everyone. And that it actually, when we try to figure out what is in the heart of God, what brings him joy, it brings him joy to make enemies his friends. It brings him joy to transform people that are in the kingdom of darkness and to bring them into the kingdom of light. It brings him joy to take two people that want nothing to do with each other and won't communicate to build a relationship in which they actually trust each other and they genuinely love each other. That is at the heart of God. He is compelled to see relationships restored, to see good news shared. That's at his heart. It compels him to action. He didn't have to create the world. And when he created the world, he didn't have to redeem the world. So why does he do it? Because at his heart, he is a gracious God who is slow to anger. And that's why we love celebrating missions. To not support global missions is to deny our very existence. Because we couldn't be here gathered together in this morning reading a text in our native tongue except that somebody somewhere believed that this message was important enough that it had to be spread, that they had to go at great cost and sacrifice to themselves, that they had to translate it so that somebody else could understand it. Had they not done that, we wouldn't be here. The New Testament would be in Greek and only those who could read in Greek would understand it. So the very fact that we are here that we can sing, that we can celebrate, that we can enjoy this time together is because somebody else was willing to make a great sacrifice so that you and I could do that. And the question for us is, if it took a great sacrifice for us to receive it, will it take anything less than a great sacrifice for it to continue?
if it took a great sacrifice for the message to get to us, will it take anything less than a great sacrifice for the message to continue? The answer is no. We'll have to stand in a long line of people down generations who were willing to pay a cost, who were willing to give a sacrifice, who were willing to withhold something from themselves so that somebody else could have more. And that's part of what we're doing tonight, to say, what am I willing to withhold from myself and give to somebody else so that the message can continue to go forth? Because when we are transformed by grace and no longer offended by it, we are compelled to share it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace that is no respecter of persons, that doesn't discriminate between race or gender, economic status, or background. We pray that you would help us to examine our own hearts, that we would not be offended by your grace, but that we would be transformed by it. And that we would be compelled by your grace to make a sacrifice, a sacrifice of our time, a sacrifice of our talent, a sacrifice of our treasure. That we would take seriously the words of your son that to whom much is given, much will be required. So Father, we we thank you for all the gifts that we've received. And we desire that those gifts now motivate us and move us to do great things for other people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, let's stand as we sing this last song. We're gonna be reading Revelation 7, 9 through 12.